Sun Ray's a little strong, don't you think? How many songs about Tuesday are there? Many. <laughs> Jerry's got an entire catalog. The day without a feeling. The day without an identity. Well, and I'll tell you what. Last night, and a bad start for me as I was trying to get into my Tuesday. So... Lie in bed at 9 o'clock, which is my fault because I meant to go to bed early. My plan was go home, don't take a nap, go to bed at 5 or 6 p.m., get a full night's sleep. Instead, I ended up passing out in my living room chair, as I often do. Walking Dead was on pause. I paused it to look something up on my phone, and I fell asleep, uh, <laughs> which is, often happens. Bone so on the floor, chin on your chest. Yep. Yeah, legs were up. Yeah. So uh, I woke up about an hour and a half later, and... When it was, I, I couldn't go to bed at 6 p.m. I wasn't tired yet. So I tried to go to bed at around 9. And then I hear this loud machinery outside the apartment that sounded like, uh, kind of like that. It just, it sounded like the when the garbage truck comes to pick up the bin. Because it's always very loud, but it's usually very quick as well. It's kind of just uh, like a smash and grab goodbye. And it went on for more than 30 seconds and then it went on for more than a minute and then a couple of minutes and then five minutes and it finally made me get out of bed and go look at what's going on and there's this crew in the the construction site across the street because i live near harrow and mcmillan where ventura is building that new condo building that we the mcmillan that we talked about many months ago when they were in a fight with the city hall at this point, I couldn't quite see exactly what was going on because I'd taken my contact lenses out and my glasses are old and they're scratched and I only wear them when I get up and when I go to bed because I can't really see that well. But I could see, it looked like there was a front end loader, like a like a tractor, plow, whatever you want to call it, and a big truck. I couldn't tell what they were doing. Turns out they were clearing snow. They were clearing snow away, so they I guess they could get to start. But they they decided that 9 p.m. is the, the ideal time to start doing this. I was furious. And they kept they went through till 10 o'clock at least, 10.15. So hopefully that's a one-shot deal because <laughs> good lord, I was ready to spread smash. Yes, yes. You know, snow removal takes place at all times of the night and and I will say uh, if it's through the middle of the morning. If it's if it's for to clear our streets, it's just something you got to deal with. But right. on a private site, yes, no, okay, not unacceptable to me. All right, well, there you go. Uh, I'm glad you didn't smash anything. Just wanted to get that off my chest. Feel better? I do feel better. Good, good, Thank good, you. good. All right, it's out there. Uh, do you have similar experiences, similar <laughs> commentary? We always love to hear from you. Uh, Misery loves company in these parts, 780-6868. So uh, maybe you have a similar story you'd like to share with us. Got a, well, walked into the studio to what I thought was an outstanding solution to the situation at the conservatory. One of our listeners texted at 542, must have been listening to Kyle Milroy this morning, mm. having coffee, and... Well, yesterday we spoke with Laura Kayback from the Assiniboine Park Conservancy about the situation with the conservatory at Assiniboine Park. And my big concern, a big concern that I know a lot of people were expressing on Twitter over the weekend was what's going to happen with the plants in the current conservatory. Yeah. Laura Kayback said for as 
many as we can. We're going to transplant them to the, the Toucan Ridge, which you might know as the tropical house, depending on your age and the last time you were at the Assiniboine Park Zoo. Uh, we might uh, transplant others, but many of them are going to unfortunately die a, die a premature death <laughs> because they will not be able to be saved. Well, what about the idea of offering some of these plants to the public? And I thought that was a heck of an idea from one of our listeners. Yeah. Texted that in at 780-6868. So we'll throw an email over to Laura Kay back in the folks at the Assiniboine Park Conservancy and find out if that's in fact an option as opposed to some of these plants uh, disappearing forever, uh, making their way into the trash bin. Yeah, because you you got to wonder as well, can some of these plants survive in just a normal residential setting, I don't know how what the humidity needs to be. Correct, and th- that doesn't mean that it's a plausible idea, but just the thought, yeah, is one that I had not heard suggested before. Especially so. if you've got a, a lot of a lot of people like to do that kind of stuff on their own, and they might have their own little like a miniature greenhouse or something in the backyard uh, that they that keeps them busy the through num- the seasons. The number two uh, pastime of Canadians is it gardening. Number bird, one is gardening, two is bird, bird watching. watching. Bird watching. I was going to ask you backwards so that we could <laughs> get to number one. Gardening is uh, something that uh, more Canadians enjoy than pretty much anything else in terms of a physical activity. So we know there are lots of folks out there. What have we got planned for the show today, Brett? At 8 o'clock, just after the 8 o'clock news, we have a concert announcement and beat the box office tickets for said concert announcement. So wait for that after the 8 o'clock news. So it was kind of cryptic. That's, but I guess the way it's got to be, right? Yeah, that's right. We can't tell you until 8.07 which concert's coming to town. Yeah, I don't like to to, to tease you that way, but that's uh, we've been our mandate. We've been ordered. <laughs> we our must. Lips, yeah. We must keep our lips sealed. There will be consequences. The promo team will come in here with a battering ram and drag us away. They will uh, put duct tape across your mouth. Uh, After 9 o'clock, if you can stick around, Route 90, the city has released some preliminary plans and ideas for the widening of Route 90. It's not all of Route 90. It's a particular stretch. You know the stretch between the foot of the St. James Bridge to Taylor Avenue. What are some of those plans And are they going to be adequate? Are they overkill? We'll have coffee and talk about that at 645. And then we'll talk with Brent Bellamy, our architect friend, and uh, find out his take on the proposals that are, you know, suggestions at this point. I don't know if we could even call them proposals uh, with regard to Route 90. So lots of discussion. And uh, if you want to get a sneak peek of what uh, Brent thinks, uh, he has a column in the Free Press today. U.S. President Donald Trump has invited Russian President Vladimir Putin to the White House for a face-to-face meeting. As Global News' Washington Bureau Chief Jackson Prosko reports, it comes at a turbulent time for U.S.-Russia relations. Despite being on the outs with most of the Western world, Russian President Vladimir Putin has apparently landed one of the most coveted invites on the planet, a trip to the White House. We will probably get together in the not-too-distant future so that we can discuss uh, arms, we can discuss the arms race. That was the message two weeks ago when Trump and Putin spoke by phone. At the time, U.S. officials didn't reveal that the president had offered up the most powerful address in the world as a venue. That news was announced by the Kremlin. 
It was during that same March phone call that Trump also congratulated Putin on his sham election win, despite his staff instructing him not to. I had a uh, call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. Since then, relations between the two countries have fallen off a cliff. The U.S. expelled dozens of Russian diplomats and closed a consulate. Russia responded in kind in a growing tit-for-tat over the poisoning of an ex-Russian spy in Britain. There's no end to it in sight. Many speak of the situation being worse than it was in the classic Cold War, said Russia's foreign minister. There is a reciprocity principle in diplomacy. Of course, friendship is reciprocal too, which might explain why Putin is still willing to meet with Trump. Their governments are caught in a tense standoff, but leader to leader, Trump remains unwilling to criticize his Russian counterpart. The view from Moscow is that his inexperience and unpredictability are worth keeping close. He's a man with a chaotic mind who can do one thing today, the opposite tomorrow, and the same thing the day after. This meeting with Putin isn't the only high-stakes meeting in the works for President Trump. That North Korea summit with Kim Jong-un is still being planned for May. All of it seems to signal that Trump really wants direct control. He wants to be the face of these international negotiations. Remember, he doesn't have a secretary of state right now, and even when he did, he often contradicted the person in that role. So Mr. Art of the Deal is taking this on himself. He really wants to be America's face to the world. Once again, thank you to Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Saw another headline this morning, which is something that uh, just seems to happen every other day. The words Trump tweet storm. Mm-hmm. You know what his latest one was about? I know yesterday he was all over Amazon again okay. about the fact that they don't pay enough tax and that the U.S. Postal Service is subsidizing their operation by the deal that they get for delivering delivering packages. What else? I don't know. There was a, something about a Fox News. It just became, He was railing on a Fox News report, and I think it was about Amazon as well. And uh, he was saying it was an embarrassment to the country, et cetera, et cetera. I also saw uh, th- that he is asking a California federal judge to order arbitration for the case brought against him by the porn actors who claims they had an affair. He's also trying to eliminate and take away California's power to institute their own EPA, their own emission standards. California's been a leader in terms of emissions. You remember the the images of Los Angeles yep. in a bowl, a swamp of smog yep. in the 1970s and early 1980s. California's come a long way in terms of their environmental regulations. Trump wants to sue to take that power away from California. <laughs> I don't even... City of Winnipeg seeking your input for at least a few more days. <laughs> Interesting that even in the newsroom we had a hard time finding all the pertinent information on this, and, and that's kind of our job. Uh, we dug it up finally yesterday, and uh, that's uh, that shows that they come up with a preferred design on the widening of Route 90 between Taylor and Ness Avenue. The city says this design will build on recommendations of the 2012 Transportation Planning Study and look at whether improvements may be needed to that study. Today we're having coffee talking. What do you want to see happen with that stretch of Route 90? Uh, Who uses that stretch the most? Kelly, I know you go east. 
I don't. Well, I use, use it, it in the morning on the way here when there's no one on it. Yeah. But that's it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll look for any other route to get to wherever 90 may take me. Uh, Jerry, Route 90 part of your uh, daily activities? Yeah, I, I use it pretty much every day. And what's your take on it? I mean, uh, you've been on some uh, superior infrastructure in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? It, the part that I use at the time of day I use it, not so bad. I really don't mind it. Um, I just use from basically uh, Corridon up to uh, up, up to Polo Park here. So, uh, and, and when I'm using it in the off hours, it's not so bad. But... It can be nasty. I used to do it every single day when I was going to college from Taylor to up to Red River. Okay. During rush hour. Okay. To and, so, and fro. And how many years ago is this? Uh, a, roughly? 20-ish. And it was bad then. I still have nightmares about it. Right? I still, I, I think I'm still stuck in that traffic jam. Right. So it's been the bane of many drivers' existence for an awfully long time in this city. And with the pending... Turnover, handover, Capyong barracks. Uh, there may, may be light at the end of the tunnel. $450 million is the uh, proposed price tag. That's preliminary to essentially add two lanes of traffic, one in each direction. Is that enough? Is that too much money for uh, so little infrastructure, Shanalee? What's your take on Route 90? Well, it's funny. Back when I was reporting traffic, always, always Route 90 southbound, going home, the end of the day, packed. And mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's because we have so many people down there who commute uh, towards the downtown, but, it, you know, sometimes you could be waiting in there for, like, I've heard people waiting for an hour, you know, especially if you live by the U of M. Um I mean, it's not gonna. It's definitely gonna help if they add one lane of traffic because it can get very congested during those height of during the height of rush hours. Um, but it's probably not gonna be quite enough because, especially, a lot of the congestion happens a lot a lot more south south of Taylor. I'm finding. Yeah, and that's and that's the problem I have with this plan. It, you know, we've heard the terminology "kick the can down the road." It feels as though they're just going to be kicking this problem a little bit down the road because there is a, a choke point south of Ikea. You've got a couple of railroad tracks that run across Keniston. No real viable way to take care of those right now. You've got development kind of tight up to Keniston. And uh, was in a conversation over the weekend, Brett, on Twitter with, with Brent Bellamy. who will visit with us after 9 o'clock this morning, City Councilor Janice Lukes. And I was like... What are the plans for that stretch? And Councillor Luke says, none. Jerry, you were shaking your head when uh, Shan Lee was saying uh, one, or was referencing the one traffic lane each way. That is not going to make a difference at all. I mean, if you look at the 401 in Toronto, they keep adding, you know, oh, we're going to add one lane this way, one lane this, and they keep doing that, and they keep making it wider and wider and wider, and yet it's still always a traffic jam, always, no matter how big they make that. What they need to do on Keniston, I've got two words for you, clover leaf. And make three of them. Where? Uh, I think you need one at McGilvery at the south. You need one at uh, probably uh, Grant, Gr- maybe? Grant, and then uh, put one uh, probably up uh, near Polo Park here. Yeah, it's uh, that's a ton of money. Uh, might be the only thing that solves it. It would be the only thing that solves it. You need to get rid of the traffic lights. We'll get rid of the traffic jams. Yeah, well, traffic lights, right? It's the stop and go action, Kelly. Yeah, when I did live here the first time, I, I spent a lot of time latching on to Keniston or Route 90 right at Cordon and then coming up, whether it was going to the airport, the arena, or work. 
and I think one of the one of the trouble areas is when you have the traffic coming off of Academy northbound on the St. James Bridge, plus you have traffic trying to come up Route 90 and further north, or but it's especially the traffic that wants to exit onto Portage Avenue. Mm. And so you've got that that ramp coming up, and you've got people trying to exit into the far right-hand lane. That, to me, causes a lot of delays just because, and, and that's where that cloverleaf that Jerry's talking about, I don't know how many millions it would cost to replace the St. James Bridge and turn it into a cloverleaf, but to me that might be one of the, uh, the fixes for uh, the congestion that often occurs as well. Another thing I think they could do is how many times are you going – uh, for me, it's always southbound between the bridge and Taylor or Ikea, whatever. And there's a semi in the left-hand yeah. lane oh, beside yeah. a semi in the right-hand mm-hmm. lane. And if those both hit the red light at the same time, mm-hmm. it's an automatic traffic jam because it takes them so long to get going. Get so going again. Yeah. unless, I don't know, just force them all to stay in the right-hand lane, they can move to the left if they're turning left one block before they turn or something well, like that. That's an interesting point. Yeah, that, that was, that was me yesterday. I was driving that stretch <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I was I was like surrounded by semis on 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 all ends, and I couldn't really move. Right now, there are truck drivers that just want Jeff Braun's address. <laughs> <laughs> Last Thursday, Jeff, when I was coming in to do the couch potatoes, so I I came over uh, Route 90 heading northbound, and I looked and I could see there was a stalled semi truck in that left hand lane, and sure enough, the lineup. Where southbound traffic just went back yeah. and back and back because uh, that's all it takes is one vehicle on that stretch to block to slow down all of southbound traffic. Well, every now and then there's a moving truck parked on that side of Get the road. Get out of my brain, Jeff Braun. And <laughs> I was just about every to time I see that, that is like, how is that even legal? Those people, uh, you know, you sort of feel for them. What are they going to do, right? But like, make them move in the middle of the night or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's I think- just too. It's just too congested to yeah. do. And I think the problem is, like, you know, five, ten years from now, this is going to be, you think this is busy now? Well, it's going to be even worse. Well, yeah, because you imagine, we were looking at a map of the city of Winnipeg the other day, and if you imagine that the northeast corner of Winnipeg is just about what I would consider full in terms of development, and it's pouring into... Oh, no, we still have a few open fields up there. Okay, well, not too many, though, (laughs) and pouring into East St. Paul to the point where people are moving Uh out to Oak Bank, etc. You go into the southeast, into Stage Creek and South St. Vitale, it's built out almost to the perimeter, and now you've got Niverville and Ile de Chaine, mm-hmm. some of these bedroom communities that are growing. Well, now to the southwest, there's you've room. got Oak Bluff, but there's all sorts of room there. And you know that if any more development's going to happen, it's going to continue to happen in that southwest quadrant. Yeah, the, the, I guess the other thing you have to consider, too, that is where could there be another extension that you could cross the river? Because I remember when they built the Moray Street Bridge, and that was supposed to alleviate some of the pressure on Route 90. Not so much. No, not so much. So, you know, if you're going to continue to build in that southwest uh, quadrant, uh, then, I don't know, is there anywhere else where you could put another bridge to filter onto Portage Avenue? Not without disturbing a whole lot of neighborhoods and a whole lot of homes. and Then stop building, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know what? That's the challenge. Anyway, we'd like your feedback on this. GMAC at cjob.com or Brett at cjob.com. That sounder means it's time for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. Winnipeg Blue Bombers are busy preparing for the upcoming season, which starts with a three-day mini camp 
later this month. 680 CJOB Sports Director Kelly Moore caught up with the team's new director of U.S. College Scouting, Ryan Rigmaiden, from his home in Spokane. And started with Rigmaiden joining the Bombers after spending the last six years in the front office of the BC Lions. Even a guy like me can connect the dots and figure out why the Anthony Gators and the Craig Rose and this, some of the other, the Chandler Fenners, all those guys are now Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Well, I'd be lying if, uh, if I said it wasn't a factor, right? You know, you you build relationships with these guys and, and um, you know, these guys are all tremendous football players and, and I think it was interesting for, for the rest of the Bomber staff to be able to pick my brain on specific BC Lion players. And um, we were able to, to come up with a plan to get some of these guys and we were extremely fortunate to get the guys that we did and uh, stuck with our plan and and uh, and got the guys we wanted. Ryan, was it your choice to leave BC or was it one of those timing things where you know, Ed Hervey coming in as general manager, maybe wanted some of his own people. How did all that unfold? No, it was, uh, it was, it was actually really good. And it was, it was very amicable. I'd actually been offered a contract to, uh, to stay for 2018. I had a great relationship with Wally Bono and, and Neil McAvoy and Giro Simon over there. Uh, the rest of the coaching staff was, was terrific. I had intended to stay and about a week or two into it, I had come up with the conclusion that it probably wasn't going to be the best of fit. And it wasn't anything personal. It was just uh, uh, different ways of wanting to, to build a team. Uh, Ed was gracious enough to, to let me out of the contract and didn't really have a backstop. You know, I called my wife up and said, hey, uh, remember how we were going to stay with BC? Well, we're not going to do that anymore. And um, decided to uh, make some phone calls. And, and sure enough, Winnipeg was at the top of my list because I've known uh, Ted and, and Danny and, and Kyle for years. And I think we do things in a similar fashion and try to build a team in a, in a similar way. So it was a, it was a great fit and, and uh, I am incredibly proud to be a bummer. I'll tell you what, it's a great time to be, to be coming into this team really, isn't it, Ryan? I mean, uh, you're a football man, so you know the kind of talent that they have assembled. Not only that, the coaching staff as well. So, um, you know, we, we felt like we had some excellent teams in BC and BC and Winnipeg and, had some serious battles over the last couple of years and and uh, definitely proud to uh, to be with the club and, and excited to see what we can do in 2018. So I was just looking at all the free agent camps that are coming up, and uh, I don't know if Danny Mack and Ted Gavire are the guys that have to go around all of those, but uh, you know, there's, there's Philadelphia this coming weekend, Detroit and Charlotte the following weekend, uh, Mankato mm-hmm. and Fargo the weekend after that, and then Nashville and Memphis, and the, it goes on and on, but you're you're with the U.S. college uh, level of scouting, so uh, do you have a little bit of a different schedule than those guys uh, with respect to bringing in talent for the uh, the mini camp and then ultimately the main camp? Yeah, a little bit. You know, we all we all certainly uh, cover everything, and it just depends on what your schedule is. You know, Ted, being the uh, the director of Canadian scouting as well, is you know he's going to do a lot of focus uh, with the Canadians. Uh, Danny, just depending on his location, what his timeline is, he's going to do a lot of the free agent camps, and he's also going to be doing the pro days that that I'm doing. He's going to be doing it in a different region. But uh, you're all you're all doing different things, but with the same goal in mind. So, for example, you know when the the CFL Combine uh, recently taken place, you know obviously Ted couldn't be a pro days, so so we were going to do that, and uh, and we did. So you know you're you're trying to cover all the bases with uh, with the staff that you have and. You do the best that you can with uh, with the common goal of of ultimately bringing the right guys into OTA and then ultimately up into training camp. 
right? And there are no guarantees that you're going to find a player who's going to crack the Winnipeg Blue Bomber lineup. But maybe to give the fans a perspective, uh, Ryan, in in past pro days, are there some people that you discovered that eventually became BC Lions? That you know, maybe to give folks kind of a, an idea of of why you're doing this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe one of the biggest names would have would have been Alex Bazzi. So. Alex was an outside linebacker, defensive end at, at Marshall, which is about five, six hours north of me. And I had seen a play in the fall and uh, went up to his pro day just to verify what we'd seen. Uh, sure enough, he did extremely well, well enough to where the, the Cleveland Browns brought him in for minicamp. Uh, I think they brought him in for, for three or four days and uh, ultimately decided not to, not to sign him and, and bring him into training camp. He came up to BC right away, started right out of the gate. I think he had eight or 10 sacks as a rookie. So, um, you know, it's uh, the pro days and, and the all-star games and, and everything else. This is just reaffirming what you've seen on film uh, throughout the year. So it's it's an important part of the process, but this certainly isn't the end all uh, of the process. Would it be wrong, Ryan, to say that, uh, you know, for, for the scouting staff, there might be an emphasis on linebackers just because I know, you know, Kyle's talked a little bit about that uh, coming out of free agency I don't want to say you're wrong, but certainly every roster is going to have positions of emphasis, right? And um, certainly linebacker is one of the positions that, that we've circled that we've got to get better with. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've got to add some playmakers there. Um, now, you know, you don't sacrifice um, the plan and you don't sacrifice uh, your grading system and, and how you go about finding those players. But certainly there are going to be some positions that you're going to look at uh, harder than others. And that's one of them. Ryan Rigmaiden, I could talk football with you for a lot longer than this, but uh, Brett and Greg, they have their morning show that they want to get back to. So uh, we, uh, we we will definitely, if it's okay with you, we'll revisit with you uh, later on in the year. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you guys. Kelly Moore in conversation with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers' new director of U.S. College Scouting, Ryan Rigmaiden, from his home in Spokane. Spokane's beautiful city. Love spending time there when I lived in the Okanagan. But that being the director of scouting is much like being a professional miner. You, you don't get the lung. You don't get black lung because you don't have to be underground. But you are digging deep and you are going deep into college rosters, going to these pro days, these tryout days, trying to find a dime in the rough it is a uh, it is a difficult job but when you find a player that ends up on the roster and ends up becoming a, a productive member of your team it, it is uh, very rewarding uh, one of uh, my good friends years ago his dad was the director of scouting for the blue bombers and uh, I can remember sharing some conversations with uh, mr. Quinter about uh, finding those diamonds in the rough and bringing them for to Winnipeg to be a member of the Blue Bombers. Uh, and speaking of diamonds in the rough, I th- I thought that one of our listeners, Rui, had found a diamond in the rough in Winnipeg. Send a pic- us a picture of chocolate frosted flakes. I know you lament the fact that these are not available in Canada. And he says that they I can't I swear one of you was talking about this some time ago. It was me. And I didn't believe it was true, but they do make them, and you can swing by for a bowl anytime. Oh, okay. Uh, but it says new on the box, and I thought, does that mean they're available in Canada now? But no, his wife brought them back from Fargo. Ugh. 
So close, yet so far away. We need to go on a serial run. <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> nothing else. We'll take the GoPros and we'll record it and we'll go to Fargo and we'll buy nothing but cereal that you can't buy in Canada. I wonder how many boxes I could fit into my trunk. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling, Behind the Glass, Jerry with you. And, of course, Jeff Braun, Shanley Vidal, Kelly Moore, all here to keep you informed on a Tuesday morning. If you've got any traffic tips, send them our way, 780-6868. seems to be going fairly smoothly this morning. We'll talk more about Route 90 as we make our way through the morning and head up towards uh, 9 o'clock. Tomorrow on 680 CGOB and Global News, we're launching a series called Over the Counter Culture. It's about the prescription drug, drugs that we take every day. And for many people, Brett, it's several prescription drugs every single day. For some of us, it's a prescription drug every once in a while. But uh, there aren't too many folks that don't take a prescription every now and again. And we will answer questions like, why are dispensing fees different at different pharmacies? And there's a subsequent uh, conversation about that changing dispensing fees and what that might do in terms of service you may receive at pharmacies moving forward. What should you do and not do with your leftover drugs? Jerry and I and and Brett were talking about this off the air, and really we drew the assimilation between used drugs and used oil and old paint cans. You should be either taking them back where you got them or disposing of them in a proper fashion. What is that proper fashion? We'll tell you over the next couple of days. And should you take your antibiotics until the last day? Even if you feel better. I don't know the last time you were on a course of antibiotics, Brett. Right now. I, you are? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, I have. Well, <laughs> Okay. Well, <laughs> that's right. So, so... Even though you're feeling better, yeah. uh, did your pharmacist or did your doctor tell you, regardless of how you're feeling, you need to complete the course of your antibiotics, you need to finish this prescription? Yeah, they made that very clear. And I and I am. So it's still, well, here, I got no, whatever, it's nothing big. I had, I, I had prostatitis. My prostate was swollen. I could feel it. It was sore. I went to the doctor. They gave me the, the prescription and they told me very clearly, take this for the full 14 days. I said, okay. And I asked them, you know, they, they laid out the things that I can do, can't do. They said, uh, it's okay to, you know, the, the one thing which I found particularly odd was try not to drink this in conjunction with any, or try not to drink any milk within an hour or two of taking the pill because the calcium can bond with the pill uh, in a weird way. Right. And so you need to know all the tricks, right, to get the maximum efficacy out of those drugs each and every time. Well, part of the problem with antibiotics is we take them so often that uh, bacteria is becoming resistant uh, to these antibiotics. And part of the problem is that we don't take the drugs as prescribed. So it'll be a fascinating series over the next several days, starting tomorrow here on 680 CJOB, Global News and globalnews.ca. In the meantime, so that begins at 745 tomorrow. If you own a home, you know it is the largest single purchase you will likely ever make. Keeping up on the market, whether you are actively buying or selling, is a good thing. Peter Squire from Winnipeg Realtors joined Richard and Julie yesterday afternoon in the news to give us an update on how things went in March. Well, I say two rights or spring are the prey to homes, which of course were throughout March. And then we have the home show coming up this weekend to get people going. But I think that needs to be complemented by some spring weather, and we just haven't had that. And so we definitely had a 
uh, harsher March in terms of results, and even our first quarter was slower than expected. So I'm not panicking at all. I, I think uh, you know our second quarter will tell the story, and we're down about I guess eight percent overall for MLS sales, a little bit higher for single family and and condo. So we're again it, um, n- nothing at this point that uh, worries me because all the fundamentals are still there as far as I'm concerned in our market. We still have to look at how the, the new stress test will affect. That uh, uninsured market, that's the people that are uh, moving up and generally that have a 20% down payment or higher that are looking to get a mortgage. Uh, That's one market. But looking at some of the areas just quickly today, uh, some of them were doing quite well on some of those, you know, southwest areas still. So nothing and even talk to the mortgage brokers. They're not telling me they're seeing the stress test having a, a big effect on the new part of the uninsured market. The insured market, I still worry about in some of those Uh, for those people that are first-time buyers. One of the statistics to keep an eye on are the number of listings. That can vary, of course, from area to area of the city. Well, yeah, in some areas, they are actually in short supply, and I've heard that from a few people. When you look at our overall inventory, which, of course, we include the whole Winnipeg metropolitan region, not just city of Winnipeg, we're almost even with last year. We're not that down in listings. So I think it's kind of like you have to look at select areas where – I know I looked in Fort Richmond in February, and there was just, there were no listings at all. So if someone was wanting to buy in there, it was it was really tough, right? So there were a few more in March. So there are pockets where, yeah, they, they obviously are, are, are short of listings. And then others where we're seeing, we're just not seeing the conversions, you know, six sales out of 50 listings or something like that. So obviously, in those cases, the buyers, for whatever reason, are not buying right now, or in some cases haven't qualified. So we have to watch that. So here's the question. Can we boil the market down to whether or not it's a buyer's or a seller's market, Peter? Uh, I've been saying, and I'll still say it at this point, it's still more of a balanced market. But if you start getting into certain property types and areas, you could certainly say in some cases it would be more of a a, a buyer's market. In some cases, in some cases, a seller's market. I know somebody that has a a house in more inner city Winnipeg and was shocked to find out the number of inquiries already, and there's going to be a bidding war. So I guess it yeah. varies on the type of house in the neighborhood yeah. that you're in. Yeah, I, and I've talked to some of our members, the realtors, and they're saying, yeah, they had, you know, seven or eight, uh, you know, offers, and and one house I think in Lynn Woods went for thirty or forty above. So I mean, uh, yeah. So it really does depend. I really still still believe that you know we've had a slow start to spring, and and we've also I don't want to use this as an excuse, but having the long weekend kind of wedged into March, where people really look at Good Friday and Easter Monday today as a bit of a break, uh, that that wedged into our month of March doesn't help us because when you get near the end of March, you start counting on some of those those bigger sales days. So as much as the market is down in some spots, it's a little bit of a mixed market, as Peter Squire from Winnipeg Realtors is telling us. Uh, I have heard about multiple offers on several homes uh, from friends that are in the business and, and uh, friends that are selling homes. So uh, it's not the it's not 2010 all over again, but at different times, it does become uh, very competitive out there. And if we get some nicer weather in April, it will be interesting to see if the market gets a bit of a bounce bounce back overall. One, two, three. Three things with Shanalee Vidal, and it's three things today that have to do with work. Good morning, Shanalee. 
Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Channelie. Are you uh, thawed out yet? Are you got your hands warm yet? I'm, I'm working on it. I had my hoodie up because it seems <laughs> seems to be extra cold today in the newsroom. Yeah, cold everywhere. Uh, what have you got for us? Uh, three things at work. Well, this one is interesting because uh, a survey was released today that was developed by Accountemps. So they found that 42% of us have done this at work. And guess what it is? Uh, eating lunch before we've been at work for less than an hour. Yay! Guilty as charged yesterday. Left work early without telling our boss. <laughs> oh, we may get somebody in trouble. I think I better... Called out our, uh, your boss on the air in trying to convince them to bring you donuts. How about stolen a co-worker's pizza pops? Because that's something <laughs> that uh, that happened in our newsroom. <laughs> Okay, maybe not 42%. What oh, have the four- things that go on here at 680 <laughs> CGOB. So 42% of us have cried at work. Mm, okay. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I'm sure if somebody's lunch was stolen, they'd, you know, that would make me cry if Fair I had enough. my pizza pop stolen. So here is some numbers. 30% of workers say crying is okay from time to time, but doing it too often can undermine career prospects. And what's interesting, only 9% of chief financial officers agree with that statement. So you might want to go with what the CFO says. You, you might well, you know, want to go with that. You might, you might. Um, but what's interesting, though, is they actually broke this down into age groups, and they found that older workers on the survey actually thought that it was... Um, you shouldn't be crying because it's going to ruin your reputation, whereas younger workers were more okay with people crying at work. It's not going to affect your uh, reputation. It's important to just let it out. Now, what's interesting, too, is uh, just over half half of, of people, half of workers, 52%, actually lost their temper on the job, which that one surprised me. And 64% of those uh, lost their temper on a work colleague. Yeah, that sounds about well, right. Well, because maybe their lunch was stolen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, I, I, I've never actually, I don't think I've ever lost my temper on the job. I have cried once or twice on the job, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You no. have to you have to cry from time to time. Well, you know what? Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. You got to do, exactly. How about gaming at work? Gaming at work. So, okay, I confess, I used to be a big gamer. Back in the day, like a video gamer. Yes, Dang. I had a, We had a guild and everything. A guild. Yes, I was. We were guild leaders. Okay. Okay, we'll have to learn more about that <laughs> at a different time. I don't, I don't even know what that word means in association with video games, but I'm fascinated to learn at some point. So there was a survey by Limelight Networks on gamers in the U.S. and they're asked about their gaming habits. Okay, this one really surprised me though. Nearly forty percent admit to playing video games at work. On the job. Oh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Really? No. Not at all. <laughs> and, okay, 6% say they missed work just so that they could keep on playing. <laughs> 6% said, I'm going to stay home. I'm, I got to beat this level. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go kill this boss. Ah. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know. Calling in sick so you could finish uh, playing uh, Madden 2000. Yeah. I don't know anybody <laughs> ever did that. And so, okay, now I can't really, I, I've never done any of those, but as a reformed gamer, I can relate to some of these other numbers. 64% have missed sleep to, to keep playing. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Forty-one percent have skipped a meal to keep playing. Yeah, because you 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 forget to eat. You don't even know. You know, it's been eight, twelve hours, and oh, you know, you got to go load up on chips and Mountain Dew. 
27% have skipped a shower to keep playing. I, I may have done that once or twice. I bet you that number way higher than that. <laughs> those who admit it. Those who, yes, exactly. Those who admit it. <laughs> exactly. I'm playing Galaga right now. Anyway, carry on. Watch the guys coming around the corner. There. <laughs> okay, so num- now number three about work. Now, retiring. 37 seems like an awfully young age to retire, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess unless you're making about four, five, six million dollars a year at whatever you're doing. Uh, I think I think you might be right. If you're if you're an NHL player, then it might not be so bad. That's a, that's actually a ripe old age that is. to be retiring. Who's retiring? Uh, NHL players Hen- Henrik and Daniel Sedin. They're twins. I'm they sure are. you guys know that. Yes. They announced an open letter yesterday that they're retiring. In the letter, they say that after 18 seasons, 18 seasons with the Vancouver Canucks, they want to focus on their families and life after hockey. And that makes perfect sense because, you know, you spend so much time as a hockey player. They do get paid a lot, but they spend so much time on the road, mm-hmm. so much time practicing and so much time just investing in that that life, right? It doesn't leave as much time for family time as some other people have. Are you auditioning for a role on Hockey Wives of Beverly Hills or whatever that TV show is? Because it sounds like you understand the role of a hockey wife completely. Maybe you should be. Uh, maybe you know, I should look you should for be a hockey husband. Maybe just a suggestion. Maybe you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to let you know. Well, okay, and so this, but this also, this thing also relates to something we were talking about yesterday on the CGB Morning Show: ticket reselling. We were talking about the Major League Baseball tickets of the Blue Jays and uh, and the MLB getting a cut. The Jets playoffs tickets, which are going to be in high demand. So now, resale prices have spiked for these upcoming Vancouver Canucks games. Now, these for tonight's match against the the Vegas Golden Knights. They start at one thirteen hundred and thirteen dollars US on resale uh, resale sites while tickets for Thursday's game against the Arizona Coyotes former Jets mm-hmm. they began at one hundred ninety one dollars US and those are probably for the the cheap seats like the nosebleed seats You're yeah not- I can't imagine anybody wanting to pay one hundred ninety one US dollars to see the Coyotes but that's a conversation also for another day Shanley Vidal three things to Shanley our reformed gamer after the eight o'clock news on six eighty CJOB. No, no, it's Aeroplan. Aeroplan. <laughs> Tell them to rewrite the song. <laughs> Behind the Glass, Jerry, always finding the most appropriate music possible. Greg Mackling, Brett McGarry, thank you, Jeff Braun, for getting us up to date on traffic, weather, and news at the top and the bottom of the hour. Uh, you may have heard about this story. It's truly a bizarre story, without question, Canada's largest loyalty rewards program Aeroplan has cancelled an online member survey and has agreed to destroy the findings after complaints about the content of this survey itself. As Global National's Sean O'Shea reports, questions about immigration, marriage, and whether men are the more dominant gender caused concerns among some of the members. Well, that survey emailed out to Aeroplan members asked some questions that weren't related to travel or purchasing. In fact, they were Questions some felt Aeroplan had no business asking at all. Now members demanding answers of their own. It's the rewards program people usually associate with Air Canada, Aeroplan, 
With about 5 million members, it recently sent a survey to some of its collectors, asking some controversial questions. Some very unusual questions, particularly in the context of shopping habits. Some questions left members unsettled, especially after heightened concerns in how Facebook uses the data it collects. I thought, what does this have to do with shopping habits and why is Aeroplan why is Aeroplan sending this out in a survey? What are they collecting this information for? Some questions read like these. Does too much immigration threaten the purity of the country? Whether getting married and having children is the only real way of having a family. And it asked whether men have a certain natural superiority over women. And nothing can change this. You can ask whether or not someone supports immigration without posing it as does immigration affect the purity of our country. The question's actually similar in nature to some survey work done by the same contractor for CBC Radio Canada. Those questions for the CBC didn't result in a controversy and the data company told CBC it didn't understand what the fuss was about. But Aeroplan's parent company, Amia, knew the problem. It pulled the survey. The spokesman told us, we apologize to any members who were offended by the questions in the survey, which we had not properly reviewed internally. And after looking into it, we found aspects of the survey that don't meet the standards we hold ourselves to in terms of the kind of information we gather in order to provide the best programs for our members. I had tweeted this out. I had put it out on social media that same day, the Sunday. And it wasn't until after that that Aeroplan uh, started taking it seriously. In the future, more consumers may start questioning the questions they're being asked and just outright refuse to participate in surveys, wondering what's the purpose. You got to wonder if they sent that survey out mistakenly and that it was intended for another organization. That, that's, in my mind, the only reasonable explanation for this, unless we're going to get some sort of admission from Aeroplan itself that it was digging down the wrong rabbit hole for information on its customers, Brett. The survey asked whether immigration threatens the purity of the country and whether marriage and having children is the only real way of having a family. Yeah, I don't know what a company that is involved in travel rewards, what they, why they have any business asking you that. So it does beg, you're right, it begs that question as to whether or not the wrong survey simply went out. And I uh, just, I'm looking for the, the questions itself, seeing if I can find the survey. I know they've pulled it, but maybe there's an article here that links to more of the questions. But one of the things that pops up is aeroplan.com, let's build together. So that's, uh, let's build, I don't know what they're trying to build with this particular survey, which bridge they're trying to get. Uh, but when you go to that page, it says, let's build together, share your thoughts by answering our monthly survey, and you'll get 100 bonus miles. Wow. And then at the bottom it says, sorry, but this form is no longer accepting <laughs> submissions. No kidding. I don't know if this is the same survey that well, they... You they, could bet money they, on that. Sounds like it might be uh, something a little bit different. Well, you know, we've we've discussed Facebook and some of these other social media uh, applications that are, are really... Uh, in, her, in their purest form, data mining operations. Yeah, uh, these are these reward cards. They are the original data mining uh, vehicles for a lot of retailers. Right, uh, when you buy stuff, what you buy, how often you buy it, and you know those free reward points that you receive from Air Miles, Aeroplan, uh, the now amalgamated Shoppers, and is it Canadian Tire that's together? Uh, all those uh, all those different reward uh, 
programs. Superstore? Th- those are, yes, thank Love you. Most, thank yes, you, Jerry. Those are all created to get more information about you and your buying habits. So uh, when you're when you're looking down the nose at people who are using Facebook and getting hoodwinked by what Facebook is doing in behind uh, their, their, their public platform and forum, these are the original data miners uh, here in North America. Once again, please indicate your level of agreement with each of the following statements. Did you find it? I found uh, just a couple of screen grabs. Oh. The father of the family must be master in his own house. What? Totally agree. Somewhat agree. Somewhat disagree. Totally disagree. Why would you even need to ask that question? I don't know why you would need to ask that question. It sounds... Oh, my God. Or there's, and then to, to just, uh, here's the exact wording on the immigration. Overall, there is too much immigration. It threatens the purity of the country. And then you are to agree, sort of agree, disagree, or lots, or disagree a lot. Yeah. Well, hopefully we hear from Aeroplan sooner than later. I don't think they can, what do they call it in politics, Friday this away? It's only Tuesday. <laughs> So there'll be lots of people asking questions, uh, looking to speak to executives at Aeroplan to, to find out the source of this and the meaning behind it. When I saw the story last night, I, I darn near fell off my couch. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned the Winnipeg Jets outside of our sports updates this morning. The Jets are tied for third place overall in the National Hockey League. They play in Montreal tonight. Ooh. And a win would give them 50 wins and 110 points with two games left to play. They're home to Calgary, I believe it's Thursday, and then Chicago on Saturday to wind up the regular season. So they've got six possible points to garner in their last three games. They they could end the season with as many as 114 points which would be an absolutely spectacular season. And already it seems as though it's become kind of, oh yeah, ho-hum. And the Jets, Jets won again last night. They've only lost once in their last nine games, eight and two in their last 10. So who is it looking like they, they might be playing in the first round? Minnesota. And it's, uh, it's almost, uh, it's starting to look like a virtual certainty that they will be playing the Minnesota Wild in the first round of the playoffs. Minnesota coming in with 98 points right now. How does it work in terms of, because I know that the way, well, I know that the way they used to do it in the NBA is top eight teams from the conference would go in, one would face eight, two would face seven, three would face six, and four would face five. It's way more complicated in the NHL. Yeah, so that's why I ask, how does it work in the National Hockey so League? So the National Hockey League's divided into two conferences, four divisions, and so the top three teams in each division automatically qualify for the playoffs. Then yep. you have two wildcard teams from each conference, and those can all come from the same division or split evenly. Just the next best two teams qualify for the playoffs. So based on Nashville finishing first in the conference, they get the lowest seed wildcard team, and then Vegas, based on the fact that they will be uh, champions of the Pacific division in the regular season, they will get the next highest seed wildcard, and then the Jets will play Minnesota because the Jets and Minnesota being in the Central Division, numbers two and three within their division, San Jose and Los Angeles would play one another in the Pacific as we speak. So uh, looking more and more, Minnesota's got 98 points. The next closest team in the Central is Colorado at 93. So uh, they only have two games left. Uh, this uh, may be a done deal uh, before the Jets uh, face off against Calgary on Thursday night. It may be done by tonight. We will know exactly who the Jets will play. But, uh, yeah, bet the farm that it's Minnesota. 
NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is opening up about the first time he was called dirty because of the color of his skin. And I remember that really sticking with me, being really unfair because that's, I couldn't change that. There's nothing I could do to change that. It was a part of that feeling of not belonging. There was something wrong with me for just being me. That, that I was just there, I hadn't done anything, I hadn't hurt anybody, I was just existing, and my existence was somehow wrong. So this is part of a global news radio series titled The First Time I Was Called. Singh is one of several high-profile Canadians speaking out about the first time they experienced racism or discrimination. Here he recalls the first time he experienced racism. I was called dirty, and it was because of the color of my skin. And kids were saying, oh, you're dirty, you don't, you don't shower, you don't clean yourself. And it was because my skin was brown. And here Singh talks about how he continues to deal with those racist remarks. When people say, well, why don't you just clarify and say you're not Muslim? Because a lot of the hate was directed towards that. And for me, I've been faced with Islamophobia throughout my life. And for me, it's never been right. For me, the answer has never been, I'm not Muslim. The answer for me has always been that hate is wrong. It's really important, I think, to realize that we're all in this together, that you're not alone when you're facing these things. There's other people that also face unfairness. And it's our collective responsibility to build a society that's more just, that that celebrates our our diversity and celebrates our unique identities. That's what makes us a better society. Singh is one of several high-profile Canadians speaking about the first time they experienced racism or discrimination. Global News reporter Farah Nasser joins us live on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Farah. Good morning. Can you give us a, a little bit more insight as to the conversation with Jag Meet Singh and uh, how open and honest he was about this? Because uh, it can't be easy to to discuss this openly. No, I mean, you know, it is, I have to say, it is easier for politicians. We've spoken to people from, from uh, you know, activists, musicians, um, and some of these politicians have spoken to it about, about it before. But you're right, Jagmeet was very, very candid when he was talking about this. It took him a little while to open up and get there. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he has a really interesting story because he talked about, in the clip that you heard, about his experiences with discrimination when he was younger. But you'll remember that very recently there was a video that went viral um, of Jagmeet being confronted about uh, what a woman believed was his his belief in Sharia law, which was uh, unfounded. But he, instead of saying that, you know, um, I'm not even Muslim, I'm Sikh, uh, he just responded with, with the words love and courage. So he still is encountering it today. Um, and a lot of politicians uh, of different different faiths uh, who, are, who are from racialized groups still encounter it today in 2018 in what's supposed to be the most diverse country in the world. What prompted you, Farah, to look into this series overall? You know, it was two things. So I was telling somebody at work about the first time I was called a Paki when I was six. And uh, that's why this series is called, is called First Time I Was Called. And they couldn't believe that I had remembered that. And I said, yeah, it still gives me a, a visceral reaction to think about that word because it was something that I couldn't change about myself. And I learned at that age, um, you know, that that this is what I was being labeled. And it was a really difficult realization to come to. And it made me not want to have anything to do with my race. I grew up in Mississauga that's now very multicultural as a suburb of Toronto and uh, but back then it wasn't and then after that uh, more much more recently um, somebody very close to me made a joke about about my religion and um, you know I've I've worked with cynical journalists for many many years and heard many many jokes um, and I usually just brush things off but this time I didn't this time I said something and 
I was actually shocked at how the person responded. Um, they felt awful. They were stunned by how much their joke had affected me. Um, and they apologized profusely. And our, our, our relationship has changed since then. Our conversations around diversity and our conversations about um, religion have changed since then just because I told them how I felt and how it affected me. And I thought, you know, what if what if we can do that? I mean, there's there's a group of people who um, are, are not going to change. They're going to be hateful. They're going to be spiteful. They're going to say say horrible words. But then there's a much larger group of people who might say things um, without ill intent. And if they just understood what it felt like to be on the other side, maybe they would their, their perspective would change. I've always felt that until we measure how deeply we are divided and talk about that honestly, it's impossible to build a bridge. And that might sound a little sappy, but but I genuinely believe that uh, you can't engineer a structure if you haven't got an idea of how long it needs to be. I, I love that you said that. I, I really, really appreciate that you said that because I think that is so correct. Um, you know, you you can't you can't speak to someone's lived experience unless you've lived it. And and if and people can't live my experience, you you don't know how I feel and, and the things I've been through. But I can I can tell you how it feels when you bring up things like this, when you make jokes like that. I I I can do that. I can explain that to you. And our hope is that that will change perspectives. I mean, we've gotten a lot of feedback, a lot of people sharing their stories, but we've also gotten people who are saying, you know, why are you why are you dividing us even further? Why are you bringing drudging up all this stuff from the past? Who cares? You were called this. Get over it. You know. And and I'm over it. But it's it the the point is to explain to people people what it feels like to be on that other side. And you're right, we can't build a bridge until we all understand. Global News reporter Farah Nasser, the series is first time I was called. We thank you for doing this series. This is an important series, and we look forward to hearing what else you'll have to unveil this week. Thank you very much for having me on. And if you go to globalnews.ca, you can find the headline, Jagmeet Singh on Confronting Racism as a Child. They would pull off my turban and pull my hair. You can watch the video, the hashtag, first time I was called. Thursday, Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham will have a panel of Winnipeggers telling their first time I was called stories. That will be right after the 4 o'clock news. And then uh, Friday, Jeff Courier will open the listeners, open the phones, rather, to listeners to tell their stories at 11 a.m. And uh, we'll have more on this throughout the week on 680 CJOB. You have until Friday to have your say on the city's plans for the widening of Route 90 between Ness and Taylor. There's an online survey on the city's website, and if you go to winnipeg.ca, there is a spot on the left side that says public engagement. Visit the public engagement page, and that's where you will find this survey. They want to know how much you use that stretch of Route 90 between Ness and Taylor, and how busy it is during your commute. That data will be used to determine whether improvements need to be made to the recommendations of the city's 2012 transportation planning study. One person who is concerned about that preliminary plan for Route 90 between Ness and Taylor is Brent Bellamy from Number 10 Architectural Group, amongst other credentials, including Winnipeg Free Press, where you put a weekly column, I imagine. Well, I know you did. I've got it in front of me. You uh, wrote all about this uh, this morning, Brent, and thanks for taking some time with us. What, what, what are your genuine concerns here? Yeah, I'm definitely uh, not going to read the comments in this morning on the, in the newspaper. I understand this is not a popular opinion. Um, I don't um, 
disagree. There's lots of traffic on Keniston Boulevard. It's, it needs to be addressed. What I'm questioning is whether or not adding a lane will solve that problem. Because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that you can't build your way out of congestion, that just adding that lane, what happens is when you build more lanes, you get more cars and the traffic won't go away. And we will have spent half a billion dollars not solving the problem. Yeah, and you make an allusion to our, our reference to how it's like if you would take a pipe and you just make that bigger, you'd think that would make it easier for the water to flow through, but that's not necessarily the case. What it does, is it, it changes driving patterns. People who will, um, as an example, head over to Waverly to use to go use Waverly instead of Keniston will now use Keniston. People who will, who typically would carpool, won't carpool anymore. It, people who... Um, or what it does, most importantly, is really it, it really induces urban sprawl because people will drive farther distances, which creates more traffic. So it's, it's happened over and over in cities. They add a lane to a road, and very shortly after opening, the same congestion happens. And, and the, the staggering cost of this, half a billion dollars, could do so much other good in the city that I think we just need to step back and... and Think about, is this the solution for the for the congestion on Keniston? It's no secret that uh, traffic sucks in Winnipeg. Let's, let's be blunt about it. Uh, city engineers 40 or 50 years ago decided not to go with an expressway or a freeway model. And so we've got traffic signals everywhere. We had a loyal Winnipegger back for a visit. We won't out who it was, uh, but someone very important uh, in the community who doesn't live here any longer said, holy crap, I forgot how many traffic signals there are here in Winnipeg. And my belief is you can open the traffic uh, signal center all you want, but we should have the the best traffic signal system anywhere in North America, because if you're not going to invest in express ways you have to handle traffic otherwise but let's just pretend for a minute brent that this proposal works but if it only works between ness and taylor there are no plans to replicate this between sterling line parkway and the bishop grandin flyover so what are we really accomplishing let's pretend that what they're going to do uh, in this section of route 90 works then what yeah, I agree with you. If you go further down, like as soon as you end this project, it turns into a two-lane road. So to me, and you make a really good point, this, people shouldn't, under, shouldn't believe that this is building a freeway. But there's still going to be stoplights at Corridon and Grant and Taylor and, um, and Academy. It's, it's just adding one lane to the road. It's not building a freeway. So um, that's why we have to really stand back and, and think about whether this will have that effect. And you're right, it's part of a bigger system. It's interesting that traffic volumes haven't actually changed on Keniston since the early 80s, which is staggering when you think about how much development has happened out that, that way. But people have found other ways to get downtown or to get to where they're going. So it, it's part of a larger system, that, and I totally agree. That's part of the issue. If adding two lanes for two kilometers doesn't solve the problem all the way across the city, and, or, or even in that part of the city. But we've been talking this morning about this, and uh, the suggestion has been made that we, if we're not going to widen the the road on Keniston, we need to find a bridge or somewhere else to put another bridge. But is there somewhere else where we could add a uh, crossing to give people access to the southwest? You know, I really think the solution isn't to build more roads. 
The solution is to change people's behavior or even times that they travel. Um, you know, I wrote in my column that we could, for that same half a billion dollars, you could replace every single bus in Winnipeg Transit's fleet with an electric bus and buy 50% more buses that they have. Like, we could really be transformational. Imagine if the province announced that and their city announced that. We're going we're gonna to add 50% capacity to the bus system in Winnipeg. That's how you begin to change patterns. And, and it's really only for an hour a day in each way or an hour and a half a day in each way. If we can change driving patterns or driving behavior for that one hour a day, then we don't have to build bigger roads, these hugely expensive bigger roads. And to me, that's the only solution. It's not about finding another way to drive. It's about for that one hour each day in the morning and in the evening, finding a way to get people to and from work in a different way. How do you get to work, Brent? I drive. Would you take the I bus? Take the bus sometimes. Yeah, oh, for sure. I have a pretty easy bus route, though. I mean, it's not a, it's not a difficult thing. But I understand that it is a difficult thing for people who live in Waverly West, and that's that's what I'm saying. If, if we could build a really, um, uh, instead of adding two lanes, what if it was a dedicated bus lane that just went back and forth to Polo Park, or you know, a streetcar system, or an LRT system? We can do that for that kind of money. What's so frustrating is they had a corridor uh, that ran uh, just to the west of Centennial Street, the back lane on Centennial Street, uh, where the Prairie Dog Central used to run, the old St. James line. And in the city's infinite wisdom decided, oh, you know what, that'd be a great place to build some infill housing. And now that corridor has been taken away forever uh, as an alternate route, as a potential route for something like you say, for LRT or even just a busway uh, to run north and south all the way to this new community in Waverly West. We just don't think far enough ahead. And people uh, that don't like your opinion on this would be accusing you of the same thing, of not being forward thinking. Yeah, I agree. And it, that, it's why I, in part, um, always talk about removing the or trying to move the rail lines in Winnipeg, because it would open up opportunities to do that. I mean, you're exactly right. There's a network of, of uh, corridors in our city already. And when they do leave, and there are you know, there are ways to remove bits and pieces of the rail line to use that for, you know, rapid transit or to get people to to get to work in different ways. Brent, thanks for this. We appreciate your time as always. Uh, this is just the beginning of this conversation, I suspect, <laughs> far from the end. So I uh, appreciate your input and, uh, and uh, your alternate view of this. Absolutely. Anytime. I know it's not popular, but I just want to start the conversation about because the no, the, mon, the money is so staggering, I think we need to just talk about it. Uh, 100%. We appreciate you doing that with us. So we'll uh, let Brent Mel Bellamy go. We'll open up the phone lines, uh, the text message line, 780-6868. What is the solution for traffic congestion on Route 90? Is it to go ahead with this master plan to add a lane in each direction to rebuild the St. James Bridge? Understanding, and once again, this is a little bit of my personal opinion sliding in, understanding that there are no plans to widen Route 90, at least on the drawing board as we speak, south of Sterling Lion down to the Route 90 extension, which is often a worse bottleneck than the five blocks between Academy and Sterling Lion Parkway. We'd love to hear from you. 780-6868. Text us 780-6868 or email gmac at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com. 
Dr. Grant Pierce is in the studio with us. And uh, Dr. Pierce, always great to get some time with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So what are we doing April 21st? April 21st is a celebration of 30 years of uh, accomplishment at the Albertson Research Center at St. Bonifaz Hospital. It's absolutely unreal to imagine that it's been 30 years since that building was built and opened. And you were one of the first, what, five people to work there in in that massive space? Yeah, there were five or six of us who came in at that time. And uh, it was developed half floor by half floor. And now it's a fully mature four-floor building, 110,000 square feet, 250 researchers in there, all working for Manitobans, really, to improve the health. I got to take a tour of the center recently, and it's quite impressive. Uh, I know we can't go through an entire list of everything that you do, but uh, can you maybe give us a couple of examples of the kind of research that is being done in the center? Sure, we have uh, one of the best uh, cardiac, cardiovascular, heart research groups in the country, about 15 professors who are working in that area. We have the Canadian Centre for Agri-Food Research and Health and Medicine, CCARM, which is uh, one of a kind in the world for doing nutraceutical, functional food, nutritional research. We have a division of neurodegenerative disease uh, research. And of course, we have a clinical trial uh, group there that uh, works on uh, making the translation from basic science into applications of drugs and medical devices for you and I. The agri-food actually was one of the ones that really uh, caught my attention. Unfortunately, I don't file information the same way Greg does, so I forget things. Um, but uh, there was, uh, I think it had to do with pulses and the way that if you just make a one change to your diet and add a certain kind of pulse, it can reduce your, your heart or do something for your heart health. Do you, is that jogging any memories for you? <laughs> because I can't remember oh, what it was, and I wish perfect. I had written it down. Perfect. We got a job for you. Yeah. You can jump right into the lab. I can see you've got that talent for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's uh, Dr. Zaradka and Taylor are working on pulse crops and ingesting them and looking at your arteries and how they respond to the pulse crops. And uh, they find that it uh, dilates very nicely, which means it opens up, allows more blood through, which is good for whatever, uh, you know, your, your, your muscles, uh, your brain, your everything, uh, and your heart as well. And so, uh, yeah, that's a perfect example of, of the work they do and the impact that it has. So when you go back 30 years and, and, and you, you think about launching this uh, fundraising campaign to build this research center and, and recruitment and uh, Dr. Dalla and yourself and all these incredible individuals that uh, were recruiting folks to come to Winnipeg, was there ever a conversation, ever a question about why a research center right next to the hospital? Um. We were the first, actually, standalone research building uh, made in Western Canada. 1986 is when it kind of the construction started there. And um, the reason was uh, they wanted a lasting impact on uh, on health. They wanted a bigger a bigger opportunity to to make advancements. As you know, uh, Greg, um, Physicians are faced with a situation where they can only do so much. Uh, they only have so many answers, and obviously people die and people struggle with their health. There's only one answer to help them, 
And that's research. Uh, it's only through research that we can advance the medical applications, the therapies, prevent disease and keep you out of the hospital. It's only through that knowledge that we can do that. So some very visionary people came along and in the early 80s and decided they would fundraise and uh, they did some Nevada tickets and uh, created the research center. And what it, what it does is it allows us to translate basic discoveries. In other words, looking at mechanisms of disease. If we don't know a mechanism, why a disease occurs, we can't make any changes in how we treat or prevent that disease. We're just guessing. But once we know the mechanisms, then we can start to design new drugs and new ways to attack that disease. And that's why it's a perfect situation for it to be right beside the hospital, because we can take those discoveries in the basic science side and then translate them into the hospital. And the pulse crops is a perfect example of that. It's not a drug, it's a, it's a diet. But we don't know whether it influences your health. Well, the perfect way to do it is first to understand what the pulse crops are doing mechanistically and then translate it into clinical trials on humans. So we can see that, yep, it's, uh, it's helping them. It's helping their blood flow and helping heart health. When you walk into the building, there's, uh, there's a spot in the lower level that uh, I understand is quite popular with kids, right? It's like a full interactive lab. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's one of a kind, certainly in North America, and I'm not sure whether it could be the only one of its kind in the world. That's the RBC Youth Biolab, and it's for kids primarily grades 5 and 6. We have thousands of kids coming through that lab. The reason why we focus on kids at that age is because that's usually when they turn off of science. They they decide, you know, as most of us did when we were that old, that it's nerdy and it's boring <laughs> and I don't want to do science, and why should I do science? And uh, they walk into that laboratory and there is a pig heart or a pig brain or something we get from the abattoir uh, sitting in front of them. And it's no longer boring. It's quite exciting. They understand where the blood flows in the heart, how the heart works, uh, what its structure is, a brain, what's it, what's it look like, how does it, how's it function. So they get fired up about science, and last year we had over 5,000 kids coming through there from all over Manitoba, not just here in Winnipeg, First Nation kids. We have them doing experiments now with stem cells that 10, 15 years ago we couldn't do. And now these kids are in there doing it, and they're getting all excited, and they do their own experiments in there looking at, uh, for example, we had a First Nation group come in, and they were looking at extracts from birch bark and looking at the effects on stem cells, because that's relevant to them. And they plan the experiments, and uh, we've now had 50,000 kids come through. And uh, that's the size of Brandon, and there's not another one like this anywhere else. So it's it's a huge advantage here for for the province of Manitoba, education-wise, in the science area. We haven't even talked and spoken about the economic driver that research has become, Albertson Research Centre in particular, and, and all the money that it's generated, the opportunities for not only Manitobans, but, but folks from far and wide to come to Winnipeg and to do their research. Why is this worth celebrating in the last you know couple of minutes that we have? 
with you. Sometimes research comes under the microscope, pardon the pun, in terms of, you know, why are we spending money on this? If that's under question, why are we celebrating the way we're, we're celebrating this 30th anniversary? Great question. You know, when I was driving here, I went past uh, an old melted statue from Festival de Voyageur, and I thought to myself, now, why why do we do that? Why What's the point of doing Festival? You know, here's this pile of melted snow. Well, sometimes it's important to celebrate, isn't it? Sometimes it's important to recognize accomplishment particularly, and that's what we're doing at R30 is recognizing 30 years of accomplishment, of having an impact, as you said, as an economic engine here with hundreds of millions of dollars coming into this province, training high-quality personnel, hundreds and hundreds of uh, graduate students have got their degrees here, but we've also had an impact on medical uh, advances as well with medical devices, new drugs that we're creating, and I think we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg. There's lots more going on, uh, food and food and health, a tremendous opportunity there for us. Um, you need to occasionally just like when the Jets win the Stanley Cup, you need to occasionally celebrate accomplishment and success. Well, Dr. Pierce, thanks for telling us about this. Uh, before we let you go, Greg, we haven't really even talked a whole lot about the event, although I see that you're not the MC. No, I, I got ousted by Big Daddy Taz. Uh, Tazzy and I will have a little bit of an arm wrestle over that. Danny Kramer will be there, uh, but you will be stuck with me on the video screen, so I'll be larger than life uh, <laughs> in one way or another at this event. R30, April 21st, RBC Convention Center. Starts at 6, dinner at 7, Danny Kramer band and i know you say there are a couple surprise guests as well dr p absolutely we've got some pretty uh pretty exciting uh distinguished people either on video or live with us uh i'm not going to break the uh break the surprise but i'm sure everybody's going to have a great time who comes and helps us celebrate and i think it's important we're not just celebrating we're saying thank you Thank you to all the donors. Thank you to everybody who's helped out and made uh, the Albertson Research Center a huge success. Over 700 tickets sold. Last time I spoke to you, Susan Hurst, 204-253-3003 if you want to book your table. Or S. Hurst, H-I-R-S-T, at S-B-R-C, that's St. Boniface Research Center, .ca to get your tickets once again April 21st. Uh, we'll see you there, Dr. Pierce. Thank you very much. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Shanley Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. And then, and then.